Welcome to Hedge Fund Tips with Tom Hayes. I'm Tom Hayes, and this is your 155th video cast, 145th podcast for the week ending October 6th, 2022. Happy Thursday. Uh, we'll kick it off with media, then I want to get to some current uh, news, then we're going to go into our article of the week, which is titled Time to Give Up on China? Question mark. I'm sure that got a lot of you to click on the email this morning, but we're going to go into some really good news about that uh, and then wrap it up. So first off, want to thank uh, Will Caloris, uh, Celestine Francis, and Gabrielle C. for having me on CNBC Street Signs Asia on Tuesday. We're going to go into that in detail on this. Then I want to take uh, the time to thank Marcel Munch for having me on his podcast, The East-West Investment Opportunities. It's a Chinese-centered uh, podcast, which I've been on once before. He has a really engaged uh, China uh, investor audience, and this one was phenomenal. We're going to go into that in detail on this uh, podcast. Want to thank Ann Berry and Mike Teak for having me on public.com on Friday to discuss U.S. market outlook. Want to thank uh, Ellen Chang over at thestreet.com for including me in her article on biotech. Want to thank uh, Ankika Biswas and Bansari Kamdar for having me in their article on uh, Reuters uh, earlier this week. Uh, again, Ankika Biswas and Meta Singh uh, for having me in their article. And finally, uh, Davide Barbusia for having me in his article in Reuters on the Credit Suisse issue. Let's take a high-level market overview and just show you how stretched things are. 10-day uh, put call, you want to be a buyer at these levels. And it's just confirming, you know, we're, it's it's going to be fits and starts here uh, as we come out of the lows uh, put in in, in uh, June and September. But you can see all of these that we've been discussing when we were saying like, hey, if you're not buying in the whole last week, what are you doing? Um, and you can just see them all starting to turn up from really extreme oversold levels where you get paid to be a buyer. Uh, and uh, we'll have fits and starts, but you can see across the board here, whether it's real estate, materials, healthcare, uh, Dow, this is just getting started, just getting started. Um, NASDAQ, just getting started. McClellan summation, just barely turning despite that huge rally. Uh, National Association of Active Investment Managers actually picked up. They went up. They jumped up this week on the on that two day rally. This is what a short squeeze looks like from like ten percent, twelve percent equity exposure to thirty eight percent equity exposure. They're going to play the year end chase. My favorite indicator, PMO buy all, finally started turning up this week, but we're only at seven percent. We'll start to uh, see when it gets up to a hundred percent where we are on the S and P. Uh, same thing with PMO uh, uh, by Dow, uh, just coming off the lows at 40. Uh, PMO by SPX at 30. So, you know, this is where we were saying, what are we doing here? You know, we've got to buy. And now things are starting to look 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 a bit better, uh, partially because the Fed pivoted, not the Fed, the um, uh, Bank of uh, England pivoted uh, when yields uh, blew out. And, um, you know, so this is, you had the uh, ECB pivot with the new facility to buy Italian periphery bonds when those hit nine-year highs. Uh, the yields did. 
the Bank of England pivot uh, as the pound was crashing, yields were uh, uh, blowing up and uh, pension funds were getting margin calls. Uh, the RBA, uh, Bank of Australia, pivoted. They were supposed to raise 50 basis points. They only did 25 and want to see how it impacts inflation. And the Fed will be next. And I, can, I continue to say that. And when I say pivot, it doesn't mean they're going to start cutting uh, necessarily. What it does mean is that they'll probably initially they'll slow. So rather than 75, my guess is they'll do 50 in November. And then at that point, either, you know, 50 or 25 in December and then pause. Uh, and the pause will be the pivot. I do think they're going to keep rates uh, at 3%. Uh, I'm sorry, you know, elevated for some time, but they'll stop going up. They will stop at those levels and see how inflation runs, just like they did in 1948 to 1953. They kept the Fed funds rate at 3%, um, but they kept it there for quite a a long time. And I I could see a similar situation, whether it's 3.5, 3.75, or 4, uh, just keeping there but stopping. Or, you know, the the key is going to be the first move down below 75 basis points, and the market will start to discount uh, that they're close to a pause. And in this case, that's a pivot. Um, uh, you almost don't want to see them start cutting because that means some, some really bad things are happening. Uh, I'd like to see them, you know, kind of, uh, level off here, plateau, pause equals pivot. And then, um, uh, you'll see inflation run above trend. You know, the other thing that you're seeing here is this, you know, um, I think it was Bostic today literally reading from a script what he's supposed to say in front of the camera and they all have the exact same talking points about you know not stopping until inflation and what i'm realizing now it's not that they're stupid it's that they're desperate and what what makes them desperate is the fact that when volcker was raising rates uh debt to gdp was 30 percent right now they're raising rates. Debt to GDP is 122%. And we're going to talk about the interest expense now, which is just mind boggling since they've been raising rates. Uh, and their box. So their only tool in their box, uh, they can't keep raising. Their only tool is to talk the hell out of the markets with forward guidance because, uh, if they don't, things are going to get out of control. So they're, they're, you're going to continue to see this. Uh, but they're really limited on what they can do. And in the scheme of things, the fact that we're only at 3% considering how high inflation got, um, you know, does show some restraint on their behalf, despite the uh, last three emergency hikes of 75 basis points each um, going forward. So some more uh, put call. Uh, what else do we have here? Uh, McClellan oscillators turned up. Uh, McClellan summation is just barely starting to turn up for the NASDAQ. So these things just give you guideposts. They're not, not no one is perfect. This McClellan summation. So we should start to see these turn up over the next couple of weeks. Um, the skew, again, there's no one ensuring two standard deviations out because the 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 um, uh, the house already burned down. And you see the same thing in the pandemic lows. There was no one buying that uh, one and two standard deviate, de- deviation insurance because, you know, the collapse had already happened. Uh, and that's usually where you find bottoms. Uh, that's different from the VIX with people insuring at the money when volatility is high, mostly retail, uh, and that creates a different story, which we'll talk about at some point. Uh, SPX to TLT, Elliott Wave, and then VIX is coming down. You always have these type of aftershocks after the big moves. So 
that's that outlook by sector, communication sector. They're all just starting to barely turn up. NASDAQ barely turn up. But these are all signals. Did you want to be a buyer in fall of 2011? You bet. Uh, 2016, you bet. Uh, when Powell screwed up the first time in 2018, you bet. Pandemic lows, you bet. And here, same exact thing. Um, uh, financials barely starting to come off the mat. Um, healthcare coming off the mat. Dow barely starting to come. I mean, this is extreme. I mean, this is pandemic levels and we're nothing like that situation. It's just people feel like it because people have, um, 60, 40 portfolios and it's some of the worst performance in history. Um, uh, to have both go down at the same time. Usually when equities go down, treasuries and bonds go up as a, as a safety mechanism. So, you know, the S&P might go down 25% and bonds might appreciate, you know, 12%. So you're net down 10 and no one really cares, but they're all down 30%, uh, in a, in what was a quote unquote safe portfolio. And that's why, the, that's why there's all the panic materials. Um, S&P, real estate is even coming off the mat, bullish percent SPX, staples, telecom. So you can just see these are areas where you got paid to be a buyer, not a seller, uh, and on and on. Um, we covered the National Association of Active Investment Managers, some headlines. Uh, China tells big banks to provide $85 billion in property funding. Lenders told up to ramp up financing for the rest of the year. So uh, the game is on there. Uh, China just boosted bank liquidity by 843%. Um, China offers rare tax rebate to spur home purchases in crisis. Um, now on to the general economy. We must change course. The UN warns that the world is on the brink of a recession. Stop raising rates kind of story. Um, this is Edgar Denny. Fed will hike rates once more in November and then stop because the soaring dollar risk breaking the markets. So the dollar actually fell during that rally about 3.65% in two or three sessions. I think we have a, a hair, a tiny, tiny bounce today, but it looks like it's finally cracking. And if you know, if you've been with me for a while, you know, for many weeks, I've been saying, just watch the dollar. When that turns, emerging markets are going to start to go and the game is going to be on. Uh, and I think we're getting closer and closer. And if that, if Yardeni is right, uh, where they hike in November, you know, I mean, could you imagine if they did 50 in November and stopped, uh, what could happen to emerging markets? It would be mind boggling. I mean, the dollar would weaken immediately and we'd be off to the races. And I, and I think that's a reasonable outlook. So we'll, we'll see how that plays out. Fed officials begin to split on the need for speed to, to peak rates. Um, over-tightening to show in financial conditions. Look, the bottom line is it's going to be much more costly if they force a uh, economic crisis than if they let inflation run above trend. And what we're seeing from all the underlying inflation data is that it 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 is rolling over uh, and it's just going to take time. They have successfully crushed demand. You look at five-year inflation break-evens at 226 uh, they're succeeding with their forward guidance. So um, they've only got one card to play, which is bluffing, and uh, the market's buying it, and it's anchoring uh, inflation expectations. So that's a good thing. Um, uh, 
anyway, I'm just looking for some quotes here that I read about how they're worried about overdoing it in the cost of a crisis. But you can pull up the article on your own. Uh, sell low, buy high, Max Payne market remains king. This is from Tyler Durden over at um, Zero Hedge. And it just shows what we've been talking about for weeks, which is how managers were positioned at their highest net short in the hole. And of course, they got the rip your face off rally early this week. Now you have the check back to uh, knock out all the weak sisters, and then we'll start to run higher. Tomorrow's a big data point, the jobs report. We'll see how that plays. We'll talk about that in a bit. Uh, UK scraps plan to cut income tax rate for top earners, so they had to blink as well, in addition to their bank buying gilts uh, and pivoting on uh, tightening. Uh, they've also had to pivot on policy. U.S. auto sales point to continued demand. General Motors reported a 24% increase in U.S. sales in the third quarter. Several other car makers also posted gains. So this is uh, really positive in the direction of what we've been talking about. Once the semiconductor started coming in at the end of June, the game was on and they're, they're producing now. Uh, what's also interesting is uh, it's showing that demand is still there for the new cars, uh, not so much the used cars. And I think that's going to continue for at least a year or two, which helps uh, one of our key positions with Cooper Standard. So we're pretty excited about that. Um, just got to get those credit markets open once the uh, Fed pivots uh, or pauses. Rather, I got to stop saying pivot. Pivot implies that they're going to start cutting. Pause is is that they stop hiking. Um uh, or hike less than 75 basis points. Uh, job openings slid 10% in August and a sign Fed could ease up on rate hikes. I think the key thing that the Fed needs to see is unemployment going up. Uh, we'll see if we get uh, that tomorrow. Um, here's another article. Friday's week jobs report may slow Fed lift S&P 500. Uh, U.S. economy report is expected to show U.S. economy added 250,000 jobs in September with a gain of 280,000 in the private sector. That would be a big step down from the recent trend, but uh, still too hot for the uh, Federal Reserve. There's a good chance of a much softer reading that could extend the S&P rally further. Uh, and the reason that they have that view is because uh, jolts, the job openings uh, uh, collapsed this week, um, which shows there's less hiring and that's a good sign. Uh, uh, Tom Lee out. There's a good reason to think that the two-day surge in stocks this week wasn't just another bear market rally, according to Fundstrat. And what he's pointing to is a 100% bid NASDAQ day. Since 1996, this has only happened six times. And six of the six times the NASDAQ 100 is higher six months and 12 months later with average gains of 27% and 34%. So let's just repeat this again. Since 1996, it's only happened six times. And six of the six times the NASDAQ 100 is higher six months and 12 months later with average gains of 27% and 34%. Additionally, 100% bid day for the NASDAQ 100 has never happened during a bear market rally. In isolation, this is very, very bullish. So you can see all these dots when that happened and monster rallies followed. So uh, we hope that uh, holds true moving forward. Uh, here's some, some big dogs coming out saying, telling the Fed to stop. Barry Sternlich, billionaire real estate guy. Uh, they're going to cause unbelievable calamities if they keep up their action and not just here all over the globe. Uh, the global economy will crumble if Fed doesn't stop hiking interest rates. I, I think they're, I hope they know that. Uh, Nobel laureate Paul Krugman warns the Fed risk going too far in fighting inflation and predicts a return back to rock bottom interest rates. 
Uh, I agree with the first part. I'm not sure on the second part because uh, you still have the millennials with demand. I think more likely than not, it's going to be just like the baby boom in the late 40s, early 50s. Uh, housing formation, et cetera, so inflation will run above trend because of demand. That's a good thing, uh, and we haven't seen that in a while. We've been basically in a deflationary environment for two decades, and it's nice to see a return uh, back to normalcy. Wharton Professor Jeremy Siegel says he's disturbed by the Fed's groupthink as there are no members who have dissented with Powell's hawkishness. They're all reading a script. I mean, literally, if you watched him, I, I couldn't believe it. The guy's literally reading from a paper today uh, exactly what he's supposed to say. And I think they've all realized, like, holy cow, we've just jacked up the interest expense by a trillion dollars a year with 122% debt to GDP. Uh, we're screwed. The only game we have is to walk uh, to talk down inflation expectations because we're limited in, amount, in the amount that we can continue to hike without crashing everything, which is going to cost us a lot more. You know, I said on CNBC, which we're going to show uh, that, you know, the, every one percent adds, you know, two percent, uh, 285 billion to the um, uh, annual deficit. Uh, well, they've gone three and a half percent off the bottom. So you're, you're approaching a trillion dollars right now. The problem is with all the other line items, they don't collect two trillion dollars from the taxpayers. So what do they have to do to pay it? They have to print more money. So it's actually more inflationary. The more they hike rates, the more inflationary it is because the more they're going to print and increase money supply. So um, I think uh, hopefully that one of those 400 PhDs at the uh, Fed is, has done a little bit of math, basic arithmetic from third grade and figured that out. U.S. national debt tops $31 trillion for the first time. Uh, so many of the concerns we've had about our growing debt path are starting to show themselves as we bo uh, both grow our debt and grow our rates of interest, uh, said Michael Peterson, the chief executive officer of the P Peter G. Peterson Foundation, which pr promotes deficit reduction. Too many people were complacent about our debt path in part because rates were so low. Um, and this just shows interest expense on U.S. public debt outstanding uh, through August 2022. And you can see it's gone from uh, just over a year ago from $482 billion a year to 716 And that's probably now going to a trillion because uh, it's not accounting for the last couple of hikes. Uh, at three point, oh, here we go. At 3.5% interest rate below the current yield on the six month through the 30 year, uh, treasuries, that's over 1 trillion in interest expense per year and will soon surpass Social Security as the largest line item in the federal budget. So they've got to stop hiking, uh, and maybe even, uh, cut a little bit if inflation really comes down. But I, I think inflation is going to be, uh, above trend. Unpopular foreshadowing December. This is from Seth Golden. Uh, Jerome Powell, while inflation measures are moderating lower, they're doing so in an uneven and unconvincing manner. More time is needed to see the impacts from the Fed's measured rate hikes. Uh, and what his interpretation is, quote, more time equals pause. I agree with that. I think it's probably your Denny's going to be right and there'll be one more hike, but less than 75 bips. And then they're going to talk about more time to see what happens. Um, okay. That's, um, Siegel again saying the same thing. <laughs> I hope they hear it one of these times. Uh, this is from Ryan Dietrich. S&P bottoms on September 30th during midterm years before the strong seasonal strength takes over. We'll see how things shake in, in 2022. But as of now, uh, September 30th has a shot of being the low per the year. Uh, I agree. 
So um, S&P up 5.7 past two days. Other times it's done that in recent memory. March 2009, August 2015, December 2018, March and April 2020. Those weren't the worst times to be adding equity risk. You can see the dots here. You definitely wanted to be a buyer in those spots. Um, Fed Daily. If Friday's data shows hiring is slowing, that would be a welcome piece of news. That's what they're looking for. They want to see unemployment tick up a little bit so they know things are working and they're, they've succeeded in destroying demand. Apparently, most of these folks don't walk out in the real economy, uh, but uh, that, that number will show them. Despite the fact that it's 30 days lagging, uh, it will still be helpful. So 15% uh, down in Q2, 20% down and over 20% down in the first half. Usually next quarter higher, except 2008 and now 2022 with Q3 producing uh, negative returns. What next? After two quarters decline of 20% plus, two quarters later, the S&P has never been lower, i.e. Uh, Q4 2022. And you see here the average for the next quarter. Uh, they range from you know 2% to 19%. The average is 9% up. Um, and same thing here. Uh, and then after the next half, you're looking at um, average of 15%. I'm sorry. Next quarter is uh, average 6.2. Next half, 15%. Next year, 26% up. And the same thing after... Uh, the 20%, uh, the average goes up to, which we had in 2022, the average goes up to 8.15 for the next three months, 8.51 for the next three months, 21.47 for the next six months, average 31.36 for the next year. Uh, so, you know, while everyone's selling in the hole, you know what we've been suggesting. Brendan Ahern, who runs the K-Web, mainstream media, China is in complete lockdown. Evidence suggests otherwise. Uh, he shows uh, Hangzhou East Railway Station transported 260,000 passengers on the first day of National Day. They have a holiday this week. The travel's going through the roof. They're a year behind us. Look, they've been off the grid for the last year in lockdowns. Uh, they're going to play the revenge travel and the catch-up game just like we have. And then the, the, the revenge spending on services, et cetera, et cetera. Just think a year back where the U.S. was. That's where China's starting to be. We were also still loosening back then. They've been aggressively uh, loosening, so uh, you can see uh, some anecdotes there. Uh, Carl Quintanilla, it's important to appreciate just how fast inflation could fall across the next year or so thanks to margin recompression from wildly elevated levels and plunging food and energy inflation. So these are from Pantheon Macro. Uh, it shows projection assuming CRB foodstuffs index is unchanged, and you can see it just completely collapsing to the flat line. Uh, and then our current base case forecast is that headline CPI inflation will drop below 3% by the middle of next year from 8.3% in August, but a sub 2% rate is entirely possible. And you can see their data here uh, moving forward. Next, uh, fun fact, since 1942, S&P has never delivered a negative return from November midterm election year through April of the following year. Average return is roughly 17%. Worst performance is up uh, seven-tenths of 1%. 70s and 80s inflation rate, rate hike cycles included. And you can see, um, uh, so May through October, the worst months of the year, uh, up 2%. And November through April, up 17.2%.
Moving along, S&P has bottomed around October 9th in prior midterm years. That's from Ari Wald via Sam Rowe. Um, finally, uh, Charles Gasparino over at Fox Business. Federal Reserve officials getting increasingly worried about, quote, financial stability as opposed to inflation as higher rates begin to crush bonds. Several big investors tell me. Uh, Fed growing worried about possible, quote, Lehman moment with a 4% Fed funds rate as bonds and derivatives tied to them crash, given the enormous debt issued in just the past three years at super low rates. A Fed watcher told me the UK intervention was not a one-off and the same systemic risk could happen here, which might cause the Fed to pause more later on. Um, and he covered that on the claim and countdown. Uh, and there you go. So, you know, they're cognizant of their limitations. Uh, years, and that's why they're panic, uh, guiding this way, by the way. This is not a sign of strength. This is a sign of weakness. So for those who think, oh, they're resolute. No, they know they can't do what they say they're going to do. They're pulling an all out, massive all in bluff, World Series of Poker style. And, um, uh, my guess is they pause before they, uh, they tip the boat over, but, uh, or they, they tip it over for a little while. It takes on a little bit of water, uh, and then they quickly get it back on course. Um, but I like to say, I hope they've read a history book and, and don't opt for the pain. Uh, years that end in two, bottom on October 5th, and stage a strong end-of-year rally, 62, 72, 82, 2002, 2012, all had big bounces late in the year. This is like the old GAN stuff uh, for the traders out there listening in, years ending in yada, 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 seven was the worst, and et cetera, et cetera. But look, I mean, you know, these are all useful things to have in your pocket. Okay, so now we're going to move on to the article of the week. And the best way to do this, I was going to go and read through it, the whole thing. Uh, the first video I'm going to show you is from my CNBC interview. And this lays out my U.S. outlook, uh, followed by uh, a concise two-minute uh, bull case for Alibaba based predicated on the cloud. I'm showing how it's basically, uh, you know, just on the cloud, the cloud business alone worth over $200 a share. Then you add the cash, uh, you know, another 70. Then you add the Alibaba share. Oh, and by the way, you have the e-commerce business, which is the core of their business and earnings right now. And the argument is predicated upon um, uh, the China being six years behind the U.S. in terms of the cloud. And, uh, and you can see here the data from Amazon's AWS business. In 2016, they had $12 billion of top line. Uh, last year, Alibaba had $11.7 billion of top line. But you can see the trajectory is the same. Uh, McKinsey has said that the cloud business in all of China is going to triple by 2025. Alibaba's got 36.7 share. We think that share is even going to grow, but that's not in our base case model. Uh, and the, the, the key point here is that as you get to scale, when they hit 20 billion, when they hit 30 billion, you're going to get that operating margin from what is now 1.5% to 29% equivalent to where uh, uh, Amazon Web Services got to once they got to scale. Oh, and by the way, uh, not just getting to 30 billion by 2025 with a 29% margin, uh, $10, $10 billion of new operating income. But actually, if you see the growth trajectory after that, it, it just it, it becomes a winner take all market. So we're going to talk first um, uh, with Will Kolaris, and then we're going to follow immediately with our long 
detailed China interview with our newest updates, with our newest sum of the parts valuation on Alibaba with Marcel Munch. You want to check these two out and then we'll wrap it up with the uh, two ask me anything questions, some stuff on earnings, some stuff, stuff on economic uh, indicators, and then we'll wrap it up. So here we go. Thanks for that, Em. Let's continue to talk the markets, but let's go stateside for a little bit of a spill. Thomas Hayes, friend of the show. He's also chairman and managing member of Great Hill Capital, joining us live from New York. Tom, thanks so much for being here. It's been an absolute chaotic last few weeks since you were last on. Just in terms of what we've been seeing in terms of the market activity, in terms of the month of September, what's your take on the action? Is, is it as bad as it gets in September now? I think so, Will, and thanks for having me. Good to be back. Uh, we're coming off some weak seasonality. Uh, statistically, September is the weakest month of the year, and last week is the weakest week of the weakest month of the year. So we got it all at once last week, but I think we're through that. We've got the S&P down about 21% year to date. However, earnings estimates for next year are only down about 3%, uh, a little bit more than 3%. And I really like this setup going into Q3 earnings season. It reminds me a lot of late June going into Q2 earnings season. You had all the analysts in concert saying that uh, estimates were going to come down 20%. They only came down 3%. And right now you have them singing from the exact same hymnal everyone calling for this huge takedown in earnings. But I think what they're missing is uh, estimates are for 3.2% growth, but prices have doubled that much. So they're effectively calling for negative 3% earnings growth, and the economy just doesn't bear that out. So I think the bar is set low enough, Will, that we're going to see some positive su surprises, and the pain trade going, going into year-end based on positioning is up. And this is what I wanted to ask you about, because I, I tend to agree with you when it does come to the prospect of upside surprises coming through. But how much do you think it could potentially get negatively offset by the, the guide coming through for the, the quarter following? Because if you're looking at the quarter following, if you're looking at what you were mentioning before with the, the 2023, do you think that that's where the potential downside will come? I think if you think in terms, I, I think what, what most analysts are missing here is the impact of the reset of prices higher. And most analysts haven't been through an inflationary period like this. Uh, I mean, I wasn't, a, I wasn't an analyst in the early 80s by any stretch of the imagination, but I have read a few history books. Uh, and, I, and I think what they're missing is that reset. So while businesses may sell fewer units, the cost per unit has gone up. And I think the nominal earnings and the nominal revenue are going to be more steady than people are anticipating. So maybe instead of coming down 3%, we come down 5% in total, but that's a lot better than the 20%. And usually uh, markets bottom uh, with higher PEs, not lower PEs for that reason. It sets the bar lower and we can start to grow from there. But the key thing is gonna be what we saw last week, which is pivots from the central banks around the world. Perfect, because just quickly before we get to some talking some stocks, I wanted to ask you, does it, and I suppose this is probably the only word I can think of, does it scare you what the Fed is doing right now if they do stick to their guns? Because this appears to be an incredible bout of aggression. You've also got the quantitative tightening that has to pass through into the economy that you could see a set of circumstances that if they don't pivot, that the markets could potentially collapse. Yeah, there's no question about it. But the credit markets will discipline them as they always discipline policymakers who have grandiose ideas. Uh, and they're going to pivot just like the ECB had to come up with the facility for Italy. Uh, the BOE had to buy gilts. 
and RBA uh, heights lower than expected for, for three reasons. First and foremost, inflation is rolling over in the U.S. CPI is lagged data up to 60 days old, and we're seeing it in the underlying data that we look at uh, and many smart economists look at. Secondly, uh, every 1% hike uh, adds about $285 billion annually to the federal deficit. Now, uh, I know Chair Powell has this fantasy that he's going to become Paul Volcker, but when Paul Volcker was raising rates, uh, debt to GDP was 30%. It's currently at 122%. So where are they going to get that increased uh, interest service is from the taxpayers. The problem is they don't connect, uh, collect enough from taxpayers. So what do they have to do? They have to print more money. So they, in effect, would create more inflation if they keep along this path. And I think they know that. And finally, as I said, uh, credit markets will certainly force their hand, as, as we've seen already. So, yeah, so that, uh, on, that would... on the bad news, the good news is the hawkish talk has been extremely <laughs> effective because if you look at forward inflation break-evens, five-year break-evens today were down to 226 from 359 in March. So that hawkish talk is working, but the actions are probably going to have to moderate in coming months. Just, just really quickly, because there is also the potential that the credit markets could be the next shoe to drop in terms of the swap starting to widen. Do you think that that's a risk at all? Well, I think you saw the pivot last month. If you looked at high yield spreads in September, they started to approach the pandemic lows when they decided to backstop the whole corporate credit market. You know, when municipalities and governments and businesses have to refinance and they can't, the cost of another economic crisis is greater than running inflation above trend at three to five percent. And if you look back to post-World War II, the last time we were at 120 percent debt to GDP, we borrowed for the war to fight a visible enemy. This time we borrowed to fight an invisible enemy. They ran inflation above trend, 3 to 5%. Within five years, debt to GDP was down to 63%. And I think they're going to run the same playbook here. All right, Tom, let's talk Boeing. Because uh, yeah. I note that you mentioned that 24 order, the 18 on, and then perhaps that further eight. Is this, for Boeing, significant, not just in terms of this particular order, but that the Chinese market is reopened to them in terms of getting more planes into that market, considering what happened? Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head, Will. I mean, this is a symbolic and, and an actual order. Uh, big order from China Airlines for up to 24 787 Dreamliners. You know, Boeing operates in a duopoly with Airbus, uh, and the demand for business travel, where all the margin is, is really, really accelerating since Labor Day uh, in the last month or so. You're seeing it in the TSA pass-through numbers. We had the revenge travel with leisure over the summer, but the business travel is where all the money is. And that's coming back full steam. We saw from the CEO of Expedia on CNBC US uh, a week ago talking about that. Uh, and earnings growth for the next five years is going to be about 20% per year. Uh, that's really not reflected in at these levels. Boeing came down with the rest of the market. What people forget is when you operate in a, in a duopoly, you basically set price. And, uh, and the demand for these, uh, what they sell is going up, not only on the aviation side, but on the defense side with all the geopolitical headwinds that we're, we're dealing with. So we think this is an attractive valuation for a business with a competitive moat moving forward. You're still buying Barber, Thomas? You're not concerned about all the drama that could potentially unfold over the next two years with the presidential cycle? I love it more than ever, Will, and <laughs> let me tell you why. Uh, you know, first off, the, the stock bottomed in March uh, and uh, it came close to retesting it in September. But uh, I, I just want to leave aside the commerce business, leave aside the consumer. Let's talk about the cloud, because McKinsey came out with a report a couple of weeks ago. They said the cloud business in China is going to triple by 2025 from 33 billion to 90 billion. Uh, Alibaba has 36.7 percent share 
which means on 90 billion, they're going to do about 30 billion top line up from 11 billion today. Now, their operating margin on the 11 billion is about one and a half percent. If you look at AWS trajectory, uh, Amazon's cloud service, they are where Alibaba was in 2016. China's about five to six years behind in terms of digitization. Uh, Amazon operating at scale has 29% operating margins on their cloud business. So at 30 billion that Baba will do by 2025, that's another $10 billion in operating income that they don't have now. Put that in perspective, their peak operating income a year ago when the stock traded at 319 was $16 billion. You had another $10 billion to that. Assuming the commerce business doesn't grow at all, that's 60% more operating income on a peak multiple. Uh, that puts it to 450, 500. You cut it in half, you're still looking at a $250 stock. And we like that out outcome trade, considering it's trading in the mid 80s right now. And I think people are really underestimating that. Oh, and by the way, their international e-commerce business and China business is going to grow as the country reopens. And we're seeing signs of that in the reduced regulation in Macau. You're seeing the gaming stocks jump like crazy now that the zero COVID is kind of moderating. And I think we're going to see more of that uh, in coming weeks after the China National Congress. That will help the consumption side of the business, which is not even priced into this mm. upside. Tom, really quickly, just in terms of what you're avoiding, because we, we had a hedge fund manager on yesterday that was suggesting sell everything. In retail investors should just get out of these markets. In terms of a suggestion that you could give for investors to just think twice about it, is there any particular asset class, is there any particular stock that you'd be avoiding right now? I'm avoiding following the crowd and the peak pessimism. <laughs> if you look at the cash positioning is the highest since the great financial crisis lows in March of 2009 and the pandemic lows in March of 2020. I'm always, I'm always skeptical of people who come on after the market's down 25% and say the market's gonna go down another 20%. Uh, and, and today and the day before, uh, what you saw from those people is uh, they got, you know, they got a short covering push here. It'll be fits and starts into year end, but I, I think the pain trade is higher. Uh, a lot of these people were shorting in the hole and, uh, and the economy just doesn't bear it out. Uh, the GDP, uh, this year is going to be, you know, basically flat to slightly positive in the U.S. Uh, and I think that uh, as we get through this, and I also think that people are underestimating the impact of all the stimulus that China has been doing since March that now is going to be realized in the economy as they're opening. And we saw it in retail sales in China last month alone, and it's really just the beginning. So uh, there are a lot of green shoots that people are underestimating, and I love the peak pessimism that you're seeing from some, some of the managers on your show. Well, it's an opportunity, isn't it, Tom? We're going to have to leave it there. No Thank question. you so much for your time, and we'll speak very soon, I know. That was Thomas Hayes from Great Hill Capital. Street so, Tom Hayes, the one and only. It's good to have you back, and uh, congratulations on your interview just recently with Yahoo Finance. And I really don't think we're in a situation like the pandemic where the uncertainty was that high. Now they just need to ease up a little bit on the action. They've got a little bit too much the last three hikes. It's, uh, you might kill the patient with too much medicine. Uh, that's possibly a good introduction, I think. Um, everyone should follow you. Uh, you are delivering great insights. And today we're talking about the markets in general, uh, China a little bit in specific, and of course, Alibaba. And yeah, the fun part is like the last time I had you on the channel, I think that was in May, um, Alibaba was trading around 88 bucks. And um, yeah, you basically <laughs> presented two um, opportunities there, um, China and biotech, right? And both kind of took off in June. 
and um, have since then come down quite a bit. Has anything changed on your perspectives regarding Alibaba, like Chinese stocks in uh, particular there? Yeah, I, I think a couple of things. First off, thanks for having me on your show, Marcel. You've got a wonderful audience. I see them on Twitter. They're fully engaged and uh, you really deliver a lot of value for them. So I appreciate that. Uh, I would say, you know, I've spent some time. I, I mean, Alibaba bottomed in March around $73 a share on the U.S. ADS. Uh, and then when we spoke, as you said, in May, it was in the mid 80s and now it's back in the mid 80s. Uh, but uh, I, I think we're we're through the worst of it. I mean, we are seeing uh, more and more regions reopening in China. We saw the good news in Macau that they're going to be reopening. Uh, but, you know, the, the beauty of these periods that are perceived as tough times uh, actually cause you to go back and sharpen your pencil and we all know the general story. You own a third of Ant Financial, which is very valuable. They have a lot of cash. The e-commerce business will grow when things normalize. Uh, and the cloud business is the you know kind of free option moving forward. Uh, I want to kind of drill down on the cloud business because I didn't even realize the magnitude of what that means moving forward uh, until I uh, really, really put a sharp pencil to it of late. And what sparked that was McKinsey a, a few weeks ago. Uh, the big consulting firm came out with a report that said the China's public cloud market was going to triple in size uh, in the next couple of years from $32 billion today uh, to $90 billion by 2025. So that's that's very, very fast growth. Uh, now, Alibaba has 36.7% of the market currently. I think that share will actually grow. Uh, because uh, due to the regulatory crackdowns and the unfavorable uh, business environment with COVID zero that uh, businesses had to contend with for the last 12 to 24 months, uh, which is going away, I think uh, Bob is going to be kind of the last man standing. Tencent is very far behind in terms of cloud share. I think they're at about 11%. Um, if you look at the business when it uh, gets to scale, and I'm going to compare it to Amazon Web Services, which has a 29% operating margin uh, today. If you look at that $90 billion market by 2025, assuming they don't grow share and they, they retain a 36.7% share, that's $33.3 billion top line compared to about uh, $11.8 billion right now. Uh, but the magic of that is going to be the operating leverage. So uh, as you get to scale, we saw the same thing with Amazon Web Services. Once you get to 20 and 30 billion, you start to get into that 29% uh, operating margin region. That's going to be $10 billion of new operating income to Alibaba. Now, why is that important? Well, let's assume that the rest of their businesses don't grow anymore, which, by the way, is a completely faulty assumption because, you know, I just had uh, lunch last week, well, both dinner and lunch with one of the largest developers in Istanbul, Turkey. They actually build the soccer stadiums uh, in all of Africa the airports, the hotels. And we were talking and uh, I was talking to them about uh, online e-commerce platforms in Turkey and accompanying countries. And they're like, well, uh, Alibaba made an acquisition and they're just growing like crazy 23% per year uh, uh, compound annual growth rate on the top line. And uh, there's no end in sight. They're going to be expanding aggressively to surrounding countries uh, and Eastern Europe, and, and they're just going to dominate. And that's like just getting started. So Leaving aside that the, that the international is going to grow, the Chinese is going to rebound, forget the commerce business. Let's just assume that that's zero. Uh, and the uh, current operating income of which about right now, the total contribution of cloud to operating income is $180 because at $11 billion of revenue, they have no scale. 
At 30 billion, they're going to have major scale and they're going to get that 29% operating margin. But um, the current operating income is 15.2. So if you add $10 billion of operating income to that, uh, you, you know, you're looking at uh, 25, 26 billion if you uh, if you add it to last 12 months versus peak uh, kind of, um, you know, pandemic peak, which was six sixteen point seven billion. And what that means in English is this. You basically have 60 percent more operating income in 2025, just on the basis of the cloud growth, assuming nothing else grows than you did at the peak when Alibaba's ADS was trading at three hundred nineteen dollars a share. Uh, to put that in perspective, we're trading at, uh, I don't know, $84, $85 a share today. Um, and that assumes peak multiple. So if you apply the peak multiple that the market assigned when the stock was trading at 319 with the growth in cloud by 2025, you're looking at a $510 stock, assuming nothing else grows. Now, let's just cut that in half and assume that we don't get a peak multiple that we actually get a trough multiple and no one ever becomes euphoric about Chinese stocks again. And they just give them the lowest historic multiple. You're looking at a 200 to $250 stock. And again, that uh, assigns zero credit for the cash on the balance sheet, zero credit for owning a third of Ant Financial, which by the way, was originally gonna IPO at $300 billion. The business has grown in the interim, but you know maybe the market assigns $150 billion today because of the pessimism. At some time in the future, that business will be worth 500 billion to a trillion. That may be eight or 10 years out. And as owners of Alibaba, you own a third. So when I do the sum of the parts and I continue to just assign zero growth to the uh, domestic and international e-commerce growth, which I think both of which are just starting in terms of uh, recovery from zero COVID, uh, in terms of pro-growth policies that have been uh, aggressively in place since March, but not being felt in the economy due to uh, uh, the COVID zero uh, that, that is now ending. And then you've got the China National Congress in a couple of weeks. Uh, and if you look at the people that Xi wants to run uh, economic policy post-election, they're very pro-growth and pro-consumption. So, you know, your upside case uh, just on the cloud is, you know, 510 with a full multiple, assuming nothing else grows. Uh, and uh, downside case 250. The key is waiting through the short-term volatility and dealing with it and adding opportunistically when the market has its fits and uh, emotional ups and downs. But uh, I, I've not seen a business set up like this uh, at this scale with this level of moat in my career. Uh, I've certainly seen special situations in the smaller mid-cap that were multi, many multi-baggers, and, and uh, those, are, those are a little easier to find. But in terms of what Alibaba is offering today, uh, you know, I, I just, you know, continue to look at uh, the valuation and, and even Marcel, you know, before I sharpen my pencil on the cloud and what that means moving forward, you know, I think I talked last time to your viewers, you basically have a business that's grown, um, the total business has grown revenues 800% since 2014, uh, earnings 500% since 2014, and you can buy it for less than 2014 prices and no one wants it. And that's the beauty of the, the mania of Mr. Market. Uh, as Ben Graham taught us in The Intelligent Investor, serving up uh, euphoric prices and despondent prices within a matter of months and years. And right now we're in the despondent prices phase and you can't give them away. And I can assure you, too, whether it's one, two or three years from now, uh, we'll be back in the euphoric phase and, and we'll be laying off our stock uh, you know, that, that we own in the low hundreds to people in probably the mid 400s and, and uh, you know, you know mid 300s uh, and maybe a few shares that we hold on to above 500. And, and that sounds like pie in the sky, but if, if you actually do the math, uh, could, could something happen? Could you have, uh, you know, you always have to assign small probabilities. Could you have 
a China-Taiwan conflict, sure, you could have that, but everyone kind of knows that, and, and that's probably priced in here. Um, could you have a continuation of ridiculous uh, a crackdown that, ha that had happened uh, 12 months ago? Uh, you could. You have it every three to five years. They do the same exact thing. Uh, could it persist a little longer? Sure. I mean, this one has persisted longer than I had anticipated. Uh, but, um, you know, leaving that all aside, the business continues to grow. And, you know, even though they work at it 24 hours a day, seven days a week, they can't seem to kill it. Uh, fantastic. I love the long term view there. And um, but that would have been my, my question regarding the cloud business. And first of all, um, I tend to agree that, um, you know, this is a really big growing market. And usually we talk about China on this channel on where they're kind of leapfrogging technology and what they're doing better possibly than others and where China's more advanced. But in a cloud business, they're actually lagging the US or the Western markets in adoption. And um, that's because like businesses are not really used to buy software from other companies. You know, that's where they are in their development. So I totally see the potential there as well. But, you know, my question would be like, what would be the, the, the problems regarding regulations? Because this has been an attack on you know, the, the big monopolies, if you will. And so what are the prospects of Alibaba cloud despite the technology crackdowns in this environment in your views? Yeah, I, I think this is one area of the business that the government actually wants to facilitate. Uh, if you look at the, if you look at Amazon Web Service, by the way, uh, to your point, uh, they are behind. China is about exactly six years behind the U.S. So in in 2016, AWS was doing 12.2 billion in revenue. Do you have any idea what they did last last year? No idea. 62.2 billion. And I think what's going to happen with Alibaba is going to, and, and by the way, on that 62 billion, it was 18.5 billion in operating income. So, uh, you know, we talk about 10 billion of operating, of new operating income for Alibaba by 2025. But if you look out to 2027, 2028, it could very easily be 18 to 20 because AWS isn't in those regions where they're going to grow uh, extremely fast. So, um, you know, get that 29% margin. So, and, and there's less competition. I mean, in the US, you've got AWS, you've got Oracle, you've got Google, you've got Azure, uh, you've got all these places that uh, are going to be less accepted in China than AliCloud. And with uh, now the US cracking down on chip exports and technology, uh, Alibaba is developing AI chips and special chips within the cloud. Uh, they'll kind of be the only game in town. Uh, so that 36.7%, uh, is very conservative in terms of share. I think more likely, like you saw with AWS, that 12 to 62 in just five years is more likely the outcome than 12 to 30 or 12 to 40 uh, that we talked about in this. And, uh, you know, 15 to 18 billion operating income could be the ups upside surprise as we look out to 2026, 2027. So uh, I, I, I think the other thing that you're seeing in China is the government figured out, <laughs> you know, having a record high youth unemployment rate of educated people uh, at, at, that are at unrest is not a good thing for political stability. Uh, and that's probably one of the reasons that they backed off this time, which is usually the reason they back off every time. It just seems they have a very short-term memory uh, and they forget every three to five years that the same thing happens over and over and over. And uh, it's at their behest and yet they never learn from their mistakes. Right. And so um, maybe connected to that, what do you expect out of the party Congress that's going on right now? Yeah, I mean, you know, we had all this intrigue uh, a couple of weeks ago about a military coup. You know, I did speak to some people at uh, with security clearance in the U.S. military, uh, and it wasn't all uh, empty. I mean, there was some smoke there uh, with the flights being shut down and everything else. So we won't know in actuality what the outcome is. As you know, uh, there are probably about 100 families that control everything in China. So it's not unfettered uh, power that Xi has at any point in time. 
uh, if the powers that be are uns uh, dissatisfied with uh, the policies and or the outcomes, uh, he can easily be, not maybe not easily, but he can be replaced uh, and, and pretty abruptly. And, and uh, that, that certainly wouldn't, wouldn't be a surprise. That said, uh, following that, what you've seen is he's more public, he even went out yesterday without a mask. So I think that's a signal that following the uh, uh, China National Congress, you're going to see more of a pivot, whether explicit or implicit, uh, that uh, zero COVID is kind of uh, a policy in more or less in the rearview mirror. If they have excessive flare-ups, then certainly maybe they'll have regional crackdowns again. But uh, by and large, I think they've got to move forward to growth. And the people that he has in mind to run uh, his economic policy are very pro-growth, very kind of not really uh, aligned with zero COVID. And I, and I think that's the direction they're going to take it. So whether there was some type of hiccup a couple of weeks ago, and they said, if you want to continue, uh, you, you're going to have to ease up and, and let the economy uh, recover, uh, or he just figured it out on his own. Uh, it really doesn't matter. The key is, I think that pivot is imminent. And we, we've seen signs of that with Macau, and we've seen signs of that in different regions. And we've seen signs of that with him coming out of this cave and actually facing the public, uh, like the rest of the world has been doing for over 12 months now. Do you think there are any concrete signals investors are looking for, like for the end of zero COVID? Because right now, you know, it's still like, as you mentioned, like we have some small signals, but, um, you know, the stimulus is not going um, or, you know, uh, it's it's still kind of, um, yeah, under the hood, really. Yeah, I, I think we've seen, you know, we, we have seen some of the August data start to come in better than expected. I think uh, retail sales were up 5.4%. Uh, so the consumer is coming back. You're seeing the anecdotes of the different travel stations and they have their holiday this week and uh, travel is starting to recover. So, uh, you know, this is all at the will of the government and, and the government seems to be now more open to people getting back to normalcy. Uh, there is naturally um, uh, an extreme amount of deference and care for the elder in the population, which is what's behind the zero COVID policy and protecting their elders. Uh, and that's important, but but at some point, uh, if the if the if the economic machine doesn't run, the elders are at risk uh, uh, economically and and in terms of their welfare as well. If if the younger people uh, aren't making a living to to contribute to the family, so uh, I think they pushed it as far as they can. Uh, I think that um, all of that stimulus that has been injected into the system since March and even as early as November of last year uh, that has not. Uh, trickled into the economy because it's largely been shut down and people have had fear about the fits and starts of their businesses and jobs being shut down on a whim uh, is now starting to come out and trickle into the economy. And I do think that um, dollar for dollar, uh, you see the rest of the world has been in this you know aggressive tightening. China is the only pocket of the world uh, that has been aggressively easing. And I think that's going to be a positive thing for China. And I think that's going to be an underestimated positive for the rest of the world as we look forward. Uh, people are really underestimating that that impact because China has basically been out of the game for 12, 12 to 18 months. And when they come back, it will have a, a meaningful impact. Yeah, you mentioned two more points that I like to dig deeper. One is demographics, um, because usually that's always also an issue for investing in China because of the um, uh, demographic permit, right? So where do you see this as a, a problem or even a catalyst in the short term? And the second one re regarding the dollar strength and emerging markets in general, um, when do you expect this could turn out to be a catalyst, actually? Well, I think you hit on two of the most important things that we'll, we'll talk about uh, besides the uh, alley cloud. Uh, first and foremost, uh, we, you know, it's it's going to be difficult to see massive flows into emerging markets before the dollar stops going up. The good news is it looks like maybe the dollar has stopped going up. It's off about 3% in the last few sessions. 
that is a huge boon to uh, emerging markets. And that's critical that that continues. Now, we've been saying for many weeks, and we've been early, that we believe that the dollar was going to stop to start stop going up and start to stabilize and grind sideways and it maybe even come down. It's not because we have a crystal ball or we're some psychic. We look aggressively each week at uh, data called the Commitments of Traders Report that's put out by the CFTC. And if you look at the last five peaks in the U.S. dollar over the last 20 years, every single time the dollar peaked, it was preceded by commercial hedgers getting aggressively short, which now they're the most short they've been in, in quite a long time, and they have been for the last couple of months. So uh, we think that that thesis is now starting to play out and, and should persist. If you see, number one, it just stopped going up, but, but God forbid it actually goes down, you're going to see flows into emerging markets like you haven't seen since the early 2000s. And we all know from 2002 to 2007 was one of the biggest booms uh, in emerging markets in history. Uh, as far It's also supported by the demographics, which you point out. Now, if you study demographics country by country, region by region throughout history for the last 100 years, uh, there's one common denominator that the fastest growth uh, is accompanied by housing and family formation. So when a population or a country has the largest segment of their population between 30 and 40, which are the highest spending years, uh, they tend to do exceptionally well during those periods. And then when that bubble of, of population starts to age out over 40, that starts to slow materially and their economy uh, slows materially as well. So a good comparison for China is Japan in the late 80s. Uh, they had from 85 to 90, you know, their population was uh, basically, you know, 34, 35, and then it grew. And by 89, 90, that huge portion of their uh, population started hitting uh, 40 years old and their economy slowed and it never recovered because they had a low birth rate. Uh, China right now has uh, the second largest portion of their population is about 32 to 37 years old. It's kind of like our millennials in the United States. Uh, and so what we anticipate is the next three to five years will be the best years in China for, for decades to come. I think we're going to get one more uh, massive euphoric run off this despondent low uh, over the next three to five years. And then for everyone worried about China taking over the world, I think they can sleep easy at night, uh, more likely than not, as we look out past, uh, you know, 2030 uh, or 2028, uh, they'll be the next Japan and they probably won't recover for decades and decades and decades. But that said, uh, you could have had that view in 85. And if you didn't take advantage of the next four years, you missed out on fortunes because it was, uh, you know, really a parabolic move in Japanese equities and assets. And I think we're going to have a parabolic move in Chinese equities and assets uh, over the next three, four five years. Uh, and then when everyone has, is writing the books about, uh, you know, China's century and uh, they're, you know, they're going to uh, be the leader in the world and maybe they will for a few quarters, uh, just like they had said, said that about Japan, if you remember, well, you probably don't, uh, you're younger than I am, but they had this movie called Rising Sun, which was a blockbuster hit in 89 because Japan was buying Rockefeller Center in New York and they were buying up all of these assets. And the people, the Americans selling them these assets were like sold to you. If you want to buy at that price, God bless you. Uh, and they just bought them back next year, you know, several years later at huge discounts, they bought them back from the Japanese. And I think the same thing will happen with the Chinese. Uh, everyone will flood into their markets as the dollar weakens. They'll benefit from the demographic uh, um, head, uh, tailwind that they have for the next three to five years. And then they'll hit a brick wall with the demographic headwind like Japan. And they'll struggle with that for decades to come. And, and uh, uh, all the books uh, that will be written two or three years from now when they're flying, uh, will make good uh, fodder to start your, you know, fire in your living room, you know, come 2028 20, and 2030. 
You know, Tom, even as a Chinapple, I completely agree with your take on this one. And um, let's zoom out a little bit, because I think part of it, why, um, you know, the final opportunity of investing in Alibaba or XPI, like biotech, hasn't you know, come fully to fruition yet, is possibly because the markets ha have been tanking on uncertainty about inflation, right? So we persistently got, um, let's say, yeah, worse than expected inflation data coming in still. So... What is your current use on that and going forward? Yeah, I think uh, the inflation data is backward looking. If you look at the underlying data, whether it's commodities, whether it's housing, whether even owner's equivalent rent, how it's calculated, et cetera, I think we're going to start to see those numbers improve in, in, uh, in, in coming prints, number one. Uh, I think the big issue has been the level of hawkishness by the Fed. And uh, as we look forward and we know that the underlying data is coming down, Uh, it's just a question of time when we're going to see it. Uh, Powell and, and company have been like a dog chasing their own tail. And, and, that, and I say that because when Powell came into power in 2018, his first meeting, he came out and said, we're in the middle of a trade war with China, by the way, we're going to keep quantitative tightening on autopilot, meaning we're not going to depend on the data to make our decisions. And within a couple of weeks, the market S&P 500 tanked 16 and percent. Secretary Mnuchin had to come in, Treasury Secretary, and call uh, six major banks on a Sunday evening, two days before Christmas, and basically assess their liquidity and uh, make sure there was ample liquidity in the market or we, it would have just uh, continued to collapse. Uh, five days later, Powell walked back his hawkishness and his naivete uh, and the market rallied to new highs over the next few months. Uh, then the second big mistake, strike two, was last September, uh, exactly a year ago, give or take. Uh, they had their dot plot. They had GDP estimates for 2022 at 3.8%. They had PCE inflation at 4.2%. And they said inflation is transitory and we think it makes sense to keep the Fed funds rate at 10 basis points and to continue with quantitative easing, despite the fact that houses had gone up 80% in some markets. Uh, so, so he was, like Winston Churchill said, all generals are prepared to fight the last war. And what was Powell doing? He was fighting the last war that, you know, almost destroyed him in his first time out. In December 2018, he realized if he was too tight, the market would collapse on his head. Then uh, he went too easy in 2021 at the exact wrong time. And now in September 2022, he's too tight at exactly the wrong time. What do I mean exactly the wrong time? Well, GDP estimates when they... Um, Uh, were loose, were 3.8%. Now they're 0.2% for 2022. We've just had two quarters of negative GDP, which is a technical recession. If you look at the Atlanta GDP now, the last time I looked at it, it was at plus uh, three-tenths of 1% for uh, Q3, which implies it's possible and maybe probable that we had a third quarter of negative GDP. So if, if two quarters doesn't cut it, uh, as it has for the last you know, four decades, maybe three quarters will, And my guess is sometime after November 8th, which are the elections in the U.S., we'll get a declaration that we've already had a formal recession or we're in a recession with three uh, negative quarters of GDP. And then all of the pundits who've been out there saying we're going to get a recession in 2023 will have to recalculate it and say, wait, maybe we've already had it. Oh, wait. And if that's the case, the stock market always bottoms before the recession ends and before it's officially declared. So I think we may have already had the equity market bottoms in June and September, Uh, and the key is going to be whether uh, the Fed blinks. And, and I think the Fed, like the, you saw last night, uh, the uh, uh, Australian Central Bank uh, pivoted. They said, we've done these emergency hikes. Now we're going to pause and see how it, how it works. 
Uh, you saw Bank of England have to blink last week when the credit markets forced their hands. Usually policymakers are not proactive. Uh, mm -hmm. As in the case of Australia, they're reactive. They're like a bunch of emotional day traders, as was the case of Bank of England. Uh, and then ECB uh, pivoted in June when they had to create a second QE facility to buy bonds in the periphery, namely Italy, because their 10-year yield was uh, at nine-year highs, uh, at the highs that created the last uh, European debt crisis. So uh, the question is, will Powell be proactive and respond to uh, what he saw in England and follow the course of, uh, of uh, Australia before things fully break. I mean, credit, if you look at the high yield market, uh, credit spreads really blew out last week, uh, you know, starting to approach pandemic lows. And at that point, things start to really break and it costs you a lot more money to solve an economic crisis than it does to just, you know, read a history book and realize you've pushed it too far with the hawkish top. How high do you rate the chances that something is going to break? We had quite a bit of chatter on Credit Suisse last weekend. Do you think the Fed will be actually forced? Yeah, I, I think that if you look at the odds of a 75 basis point hike, they've come down materially uh, since the Bank of England pivoted last week. Uh, so I think now the, the, the likelihood is that they're going to move to 50 basis points in November. Uh, if that is the case, that will be viewed as a pivot, meaning they're starting to wind down the tightening process. I don't think they're going to be cutting anytime soon. I think if they stop, if the terminal rate is, you know, potentially below four, I know everyone's calling for 4.6 in the first quarter of next year, but let's just assume that it's below four. Uh, they might be able to sustain that for a year or two and make sure that uh, inflation comes down over time. You know, they don't have a choice. You know, Chair Powell has this fantasy that he wants to be Paul Volcker. When Paul Volcker was raising rates to crush inflation in the early 80s, uh, U.S. debt to GDP was 30%. It's now 122%. Every 1% that he raises rates uh, uh, adds $285 billion annually to the federal budget deficit. Uh, so he's very limited. And when you think about that, who pays that extra $285 billion of interest expense? Well, it's the taxpayers, but not really because we don't collect enough revenue. So uh, what they actually have to do to pay for the increased interest expense is print more money. <laughs> so, so the more hawkish they get, the more inflationary they actually are. I don't know if they've actually done the math on it, but uh, <laughs> uh, so they have to be relatively dovish. Now, 375 basis point hikes in a row is not dovish. Uh, those are emergency cuts. We've had about 88 uh, rate hike since the early 80s, 1983, 75 or 50 basis points or less. So to do 375 in a row is very serious. And at this point, they should just stop and pause and see the lagged effect uh, as they've destroyed demand. You're seeing it in GDP with plus, three point, uh, plus 30 basis points uh, for Q3 GDP estimates. You're seeing it in two negative quarters of GDP so far this year. Uh, so I think they've actually done enough. If, if they pause now and just kept the Fed funds rate at this you know, effective 308, uh, for a year or two, I think that would create a soft landing. I, I think that makes too much sense. They'll probably have to do one or two more hikes because they never learned from their mistakes. Uh, and then they'll have to backtrack and maybe cut a little bit. But uh, if they've read a few history books, uh, that would be the best solution. And, uh, and, and we'll see how it turns out. But, but it does seem like with all the other central banks around the world uh, having pivoted uh, extremely or modestly, uh, they'll be next whether they know it or not. And it's, it's likely at debt to GDP at 122%, the credit markets are already kind of forcing their hand. And uh, maybe there has been one of those 400 PhDs that work at the Fed that actually did a little ar arithmetic and realized, wait a second, the more we raise, the more we have to print. That's probably not a good thing for inflation. Let's talk about one last uh, white swan event, if you will. And because I saw uh, you liked my tweet and I was actually saying, and it was only uh, yeah, China as well as the Pope and Elon Musk saying that, um, yeah, there should be peace between Ukraine and Russia. Um, not so much talk about this from the US and uh, Europe yet. 
But um, do you expect anything of this coming out other than Elon Musk being criticized for his position? But do you think it could possibly uh, and start a discussion and then also possibly a, a solution in the end for this uh, war conflict? Uh, it depends how cold it gets in Europe. I mean, that's really what it comes down to. I mean, they, these guys, uh, they have... That's why I'm in Mallorca, not in, not in Germany. <laughs> yeah, these idealistic views. But when they're, you know, I, I've said the surest way to get removed from, from office is to have high food, food prices and high gas prices. And we're going to see that in November in the U.S. The Republicans are going to sweep the House. The Democrats will likely retain the Senate. But that's another white, set, white swan that the market's really not positioned for, is that the stock market loves gridlock. Regardless of who's uh, in the executive branch, as long as you have some checks and balances, that means we're going to have no new taxes, no new major regulations for at least two years, which is very, very bullish for the stock market. You know, If you look at positioning in September, and I sounded like a broken record in September, but you had um, uh, managers at their highest cash level since the pandemic lows uh, in, uh, and since the great financial crisis lows. What we're facing right now at best is a slowdown. It's nothing along the lines of those two things. If the Fed pushes too hard, you'll have a temporary crisis, but they'll uh, quickly backtrack and, and uh, fix it like they did in 2015, 16, mm -hmm. 2011. Uh, they'll, they'll chase their own tail. Uh, we're hopeful that they've read a couple history books and don't repeat the same mistakes over and over. So far, we have no evidence for that optimism, but, uh, but maybe this time's different. Uh, and um, uh, sentiment got down to 17.7% bullish on the AAII sentiment survey. Um, uh, expectations for a recession were the highest since April of 2020. If you remember, the market bottomed in March of 2020. And before that, March of 2009, which was the low in the stock market. So um, you know, I've been through a few of these. I've been to this movie before. I've, I've been in a few rodeos. And I got to say, the pessimism and, and fear, I would even say over the last week, which seasonally, by the way, September was the worst month of the year. And last week was the worst week of the worst month. Uh, you know, the pessimism was really palpable. People were scared. And that's mm -hmm. usually a point where you, you see some inflection in the market. So far, we're seeing it. You know, we'll, we'll have some fits and starts here. We'll see what the Fed does. The other thing is earnings expectations are extremely mm -hmm. low, plus 3.2%. Uh, what most of the sell side analysts don't have any experience in is forecasting in periods of inflation. What, what they don't realize they're saying is that they're actually calling for negative 3% earnings growth, which I think is unrealistic for the you know, best 500 companies in, in the world, uh, because you know, prices have doubled more than their growth estimates. So even if they sold, quote unquote, less units of their widget or of their service, prices are up 6% uh, across the board, plus uh, and, and these companies are the ones with the greatest pricing power in the world. So on a nominal basis, earnings are going to grow no matter how you slice it, even if they did less units because of the economic slowdown. And I think that's what people are missing. And that's why last quarter, everyone was calling for 20% uh, reductions in, in forward estimates for the S&P 500. We got a modest 3%. Now they're calling even harder for 20% reductions. Uh, and I think they're going to be disappointed once again. And if the Fed uh, acts rationally moving forward, I think inflation will slowly come down. The other thing you have to keep in mind is they can't, you know, five-year inflation break-evens were at 2.17 yesterday, down from 3.59% in March. So they've been successful in the aggressive hawkish talk uh, and dovish action. And when I say dovish action, when you step back in the scheme of things, a 3% Fed funds rate is not uh, overwhelming considering the level of inflation that we had just a few months ago. Uh, so they may have navigated the perfect situation as long as they don't overstep and create another BOE situation, which causes some contagion. As far as Credit Suisse, it's a pimple on the financial systems. But I mean, either uh, if conditions are good in a few weeks, they'll raise some equity from the public. If they're bad, the Swiss bank will backstop them and probably uh, uh, equitize them a little bit if needed. 
but uh, in the scheme of things, they're a relatively small operation uh, by their own doing. They, they were at one point a decent sized operation with influence, but uh, every single crisis uh, over the last 10 years, uh, they're always right in the middle, whether it's Archegos, anything that could go wrong on Wall Street or a de dumb deal that they could get involved in, they were always first in line with their handout. And uh, it's, it's, you know, it's sad, but it's, it's kind of comical at the same time. So bottom line, you're not buying into the argument by, for example, Michael Burry, that um, after the multiple um, compression, we should also downgrade stocks because of earnings season coming up, um, as I understand you. By the way, I just saw this tweet by Michael Burry that he's like kind of seems like bullish on China as well. So maybe that's something he got in common with us. And yeah, you still sound bullish. And so thanks again. It was really awesome again talking to you. Lots of great insights. Um, let our viewers know where they should uh, seek out and find you and follow you. And then I think at some point we should check back again and see where the markets were going. Sounds great, Marcel. Well, I, I've got the website hedgefundtips.com. Uh, over there, I publish a weekly research note every Thursday morning. I publish a weekly podcast and vid video cast every Thursday evening. Uh, and you can enter your email there. So you'll just get it automatically emailed to you. You can remove yourself anytime. We also have a free text message. So if you put your cell phone in there, uh, you'll just get texted once a week, uh, twice a week on Thursdays for the note and for the podcast. You can also remove yourself anytime. On Twitter, we're at symbol hedgefundtips. Uh, that's where you can get all of my uh, Twitter updates. And um, and then that'll lead you to our YouTube and every, everything else where you can find us. But uh, I really want to thank you for having me on. You, you've really built a wonderful audience uh, over the years of smart people interested in the opportunity, the contrarian opportunity in China right now. Soon it will be consensus. I know it's hard to believe, but uh, you know, another 12 to 24 months uh, when everyone is uh, singing, singing from the same hymnal that we've been uh, singing from for the last you know, uh, 12 months by ourselves, so six or 12 months by ourselves, everyone will be joining. It will be a chorus. And that's when we want to exit the church. Exactly. Thank you so much, Tom. And see you next time. Thanks, Marcel. Okay, we're back. Uh, what we want to do now is... Um, go through a few ask me anything questions we have here um shahir lavian um this is from last week i didn't get to it really love your podcast a question about mac reit uh do you see this is a good buy ffo at, of two uh two dollars at a price of 785 as it stands current dividend is uh 60 cents with a payout ratio of 30 percent which haven't yet recovered to pre-pandemic of 75%. Business is strong, financial stability is solid with a lot of margin. Uh, this is a flyer and, you know, it's funny. I'm reading a book today, not today, this week, uh, actually listening on Audible um, that my friend Tiho recommended called Anti-Fragile by Nassim Taleb. Uh, and he talks about a barbell. And I've always intuitively done this, um, which is basically having, you know, high risk in small quantity, uh, at, you know, at, at the barbell and then very conservative in the middle. Um, and this is the kind of stock I would put at the end for the high risk, kind of high reward. The issue here is the debt to cash levels. Uh, I took a quick look at it, but, uh, they're in, you know, retail malls, which have been totally out of favor, but with COVID winding down, uh, there was an article, uh, Ah, uh, gosh, I, I sent it to my friend who actually works for one of these uh, retail REITs uh, that basically 
uh, in-person shopping is starting to come back in, in spades because people just want to be out of their house the last, you know, six to 12 months and rents are going up and everything's good on that level. So I, I would take a flyer on this, but not more than I could afford to lose. I mean, that's the, that's the key with all high risk, high reward investments. If it blows up to zero, um, do you live another day? I mean, that, that's the whole key. So, um, I think this is a decent, one, I, I mean, you can see here, uh, the rental revenues have, you know, they, uh, troughed in 2000 and there's, uh, you can't see they're back up to 800 here. Um, their margins are coming back. They, their operating margin dropped to 8% in the pandemic. They're back up to 14.3. Um, net income was negative 245. It's back to 32. So it's got a long way to recover. Uh, so yeah, I think as they, they get better, I think they've got about $4 billion of debt, if I'm remembering that correctly. So it's not without risk. Uh, if you're going into a deep recession, they could have a problem. I don't, that's not, that's not our case at all. Um, next question comes from, uh, Stephen Frampton thoughts on FXI, FX, uh, China large cap ETF heavily weighted towards China tech, but not exclusively. Okay. So this would be for someone who doesn't want like the K web or just Baba. I mean, look, here are the top weights. You've got Alibaba is the t number one weight. Uh, Meituan, number two. Tencent, number three. JD, number four. These are all businesses I would want to own. Uh, Baidu, China Construction Bank, uh, they, they might have a little problem. Um, but yeah, I mean, at this, at this stage, I, I think it's perfectly fine. You're just not going to get the upside relative to the risk. That, that's why I like Baba because, you know, I, I'm, I'm going to get, I have the, the potentiality of a multi-bagger over a couple of years. Uh, and with the, some of the derivative exposure could be more than that um, with the same kind of level of risk. Because if China doesn't work, Alibaba's not going to work, and this ETF's not going to work, our base case is that the pain is in the rearview mirror and things are going to start to accelerate quickly. And you start to see it majorly in the gaming stocks where they um, lifted some of the re restrictions in Macau and you just look at um, some of the jumps in Las Vegas Sands, which is now like 100% Macau, uh, Wynn Resorts, uh, Melco Crown. These things are galloping this week. So I think we're going to see that across the board. And this, in my view, is generally fine. Again, this is opinion, not advice. Go to hedgefundtips.com. Click on terms. I don't know your situation. Talk to your financial advisor, etc. Uh, earnings expectation bar is set extremely low, which you heard me cover with Will Kolaris on CNBC. Uh, at plus 2.9, prices are up double that, so they're basically saying negative 3%. The facts just don't bear it out. As a matter of fact, the Atlanta GDP now uh, mysteriously jumped from 0.3% two weeks ago to 2.3% in a week. So I don't know how that happens. I don't think I've ever seen that in history. Uh, it probably has something to do with where we are in the calendar four weeks away from some big event. I don't know. But uh, anyway, that, that's probably good news. And I think the bar is set low now for a lot of beats like you saw in Q2 when analysts were calling for negative 20 percent uh, and you got beats and, and uh, earnings only came down about 3 percent. Now, let's look at some of this economic data. Um, you've got the manufacturing PMI. Uh, still an expansion, but came in less than expected. So the Fed likes to see this. The jolts collapsed 10%. Um, and you can just see a visual here. What that means. 
we'll come back to that. Um, let's see. The ADP came in stronger than expected. Crude, a slight draw. But the jobs numbers, the initial jobless claims came in hot today, much higher than expected. Um, they were expected to be 203,000. They were actually 219,000, which is up from 190,000 last print. Fed's going to like to see that. The continuing claims were uh, higher than expected. They were uh, 1.361 versus 1.345 expected. So more people are staying unemployed. And tomorrow's the big day, you know, the non-farm payrolls. If you do get a, you know, if you got a number below 200, um, I think the market would rally on that. Uh, I think it would rally rally big, but we'll see. Um, and here is the jolt. You can see that there was so much demand for labor in May. Remember, the Fed started hiking in March, and that's just collapsed now uh, from, you know, almost 12 million to 10 million and that's going to continue to go down. So with that said, I want to thank you for tuning in. We'll be back next week, same time, same place. In the meantime, make it a great one. Bye for now.